Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Hey guys, are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start some health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA test on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit was made to provide breed relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, like coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy to download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK to enjoy $20 off each Embark for Breeders dog DNA test kit in your order. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use code PUREDOGTALK. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves. And I have a very important guest for us today, Patty Strand, who's the director of the National Animal Interest Alliance, is coming to talk to us about this new legislation that's been proposed. So we really want people to know about this, and we want to get the word out about what it is and what people can do about it. You gotta fight for your right! So welcome, Patty. Hi there. Nice to be back. Good to hear you. Not necessarily under these circumstances, but it's nice to be back. (laughs) Right. I agree with that. So walk us through what this is. You know, I don't really connect, for instance, Colorado with Oregon too much. Historically, when we've had initiatives, they've been brought to town by very sophisticated, high income, high spending groups that come in and do polling. and They don't even come into your state unless they know that on the issues and the keywords that they check and polling that they're scoring at around 70% with the public on their initiative. The title, what they come up with for their title, they poll tests, they do focus groups, and then they come to town with lots and lots of money and they do not proceed at all unless they're at 70% because they know that once this thing is initiated, they're going to start losing a percentage of the vote. And Mm -hmm. In fact, they figure they may lose pretty close to 20% of it. They have to win 50.1, right? They have to win 50% plus one vote to win. So it's a very sophisticated kind of enterprise that they engage in. They don't do this casually. Right. And uh, those are the ones that I have been involved with before. They're ones that groups like HSUS, to be specific, they were Mm -hmm. really big in the initiative world all through the 90s and the early 2000s. But the one in Colorado and the one in Oregon. Let me interrupt you just for a second. The one that's currently in Oregon is not yet on the ballot. That is correct? That is correct. And the one that was in Colorado, 
never made it to the ballot. Is that also correct? Yeah. What happens is that when somebody wants to do an initiative, they have to file it and get certain pieces of it approved. Mm -hmm. The title is always the most important part. And when you're thinking about an initiative, you have to recognize that the most important element is the title, because as you might guess, a lot of people don't read the entire initiative. They're going to look at the title and they're going to say, this is good or this is bad. I kind of agree with this. Ooh, this sounds good or whatever. So uh, getting the title approved becomes a really, really big, big issue, a big deal. And what happened in Colorado was the Farm Bureau that was the leading opponent group there sued to get the title changed. And they were successful. Well, they could not really go forward with the new title that they had and it was just dropped. It was, it Mm -hmm. never made it. Okay. I'm not sure, but I don't think they even collected signatures. Okay. Let me back up just a little bit. The reason that people bring these forward as initiatives rather than working with a state legislator to bring it forward is that they know that it's a minority position. They know that the things that they're going to put on the ballot, generally speaking, not always, sometimes it's a matter of lawmakers because of special interests or whatever are just uncomfortable bringing it forward and it doesn't wind up going through those normal or natural channels. But very, very often these are minority positions that if they went through the legislature and the opponent showed up with all of their facts and material to do counterclaims and so on, it just wouldn't go anywhere. But in fact, maybe it's already been tried five or 10 or 100 times and it hasn't gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. So getting the title right and making sure that it's deceptive and very alluring, very provocative and encouraging, you know, to get people to support it is really key. It is absolutely key. For these groups that are pushing the initiative. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so the initial title for the one in Oregon was Abuse, Neglect, and Assault Exemption Modification and Improvement Act. Didn't even mention the word animals, the idea of wives being beaten to death or children being abandoned or whatever really comes to mind when you read that title. So they submitted it, and our Secretary of State did a fabulous job. What happened after the title was submitted was that all of the opponent groups got together, and there's a period of time when you get to submit right your opinion on this whether this title is right whether it's appropriate whether the title really represents what the initiative will be and in our case the secretary of state did a brilliant job and took the input from the different farm groups and breeding groups and hunting groups and so on and the new title absolutely captures exactly what the initiative would do it's called criminalizes injuring Killing animals, including killing for food, hunting, fishing, criminalizes most breeding practices. So it's pretty darn complete at this point because most people do eat meat. Over 95% of the public eats meat. So just the fact that they're saying here that it would criminalize killing animals for food Mm -hmm. is a pretty big step forward. And then in addition to that, there is a place on the initiative where it tells you what the actual outcome will be if this thing passes. And she also did a really good job on that, changing that to say exactly what it would do from what they originally said. So there's no doubt in your mind, if you're in Oregon and you read this, what this initiative will do. And that completely trashes it. 
In fact, the various groups that have done polling on it have already been able to establish that it is very unpopular. You never know what will happen. You know, we could all get struck by lightning and maybe only three people will vote. and Two of them will be in favor of it or something. But I do not believe that this has any chance of really going forward. Now, you know, maybe some big media, somebody will get a million dollars donated to them and they can do a big media buy and confuse the public again. But I don't think so. This group is not a big moneyed group. Again, this is the group that's promoting this particular initiative. Yeah, the promoters of this group are not, I don't know them personally, so I shouldn't say anything too bad about them. But I would just say that as far as initiatives go, they're not terribly sophisticated. So this is not really going to go anywhere. And there are a lot of coalition groups that are involved. We did a couple articles on this, but I really haven't done alerts on it because I feel in some ways that simply by doing alerts, you're raising the subject to a level that maybe where you're going to awaken something. I don't know, Mm -hmm. but that's why I haven't done a lot. I get calls on it all the time and I answer questions personally to people. But again, given the fact that our secretary of state actually read it, Mm -hmm. looked at it and created a title that says pretty much what it does rather than just accepting this title that implied it even could be women and children that were being abused. Right, right. (laughs) So talk to me a little bit, Patty, because it is, as best I can understand, and you'll know this, the same exact language as the initiative that was put forward in Colorado that also did not make the ballot. What type of organization principles, if you will, what kind of groups are finding this same language and what are the chances that they take it to other states that they think might be receptive to this sort of initiative? Well, it is so far out. I mean, basically they're criminalizing using animals. Usually, you know, we're hit with something in the early nineties, late eighties, we were hit with anti-trapping bills and the hunting with hounds bill. I don't know if you were living in Oregon at the time. I think that was like 94, 95, mm-hmm. but they're much more specific and they're able to hone in on one particular issue, usually that a very small minority of people participate in. Mm-hmm. And then they have money with their campaigns. So they're showing you horrible pictures that break your heart when you mm-hmm. look at them and so on. But obviously, you know, this is all part of the animal rights agenda and the animal rights agenda is opposed to using animals for any purpose, regardless of how humane, how responsible or how much benefit would flow from using animals in this way to people and other animals. A great deal of medical research is done on animals for animals, you know, so that fact is sometimes lost. So clearly there's an animal rights agenda behind this, but I would say that it lacks the funding from the big organized groups and either they just didn't understand the process and what they were going to be up against in the beginning or you know it's a shot across the bow to let us know mm-hmm. that we're still here and this is truly exactly what we want so yeah it is possible that other groups will come together and urge this sort of thing to get put on the ballot but again since they're going after every use of animals basically In my opinion, it's unlikely to succeed anywhere. And not only because it's way too broadly comprised, but also because none of the national groups with money would put money into it. Right. 
you know, that's what I think. Right. I don't want to put people to sleep, you know, always be alert. Right. They come around the next corner. You never know. Well, to me, it was really notable because I had obviously followed the Colorado. And then when I saw this in Oregon, I'm like, it's the same initiative. Right. And so there's something of some level of perhaps not very well organized, but maybe getting more organized. I mean, one of the things that's in this initiative that I just find utterly mind boggling, literally, is that they associate artificial insemination in any of our animals, whether it be dairy cattle, beef cattle, sheep or dogs or horses, you name it, to bestiality. I'm like, yeah. what? where does this mindset come from? And I think that's a big part of what I wanted to ask you. Well, thanks. <laughs> well, no, but I'm saying in terms of the animal rights agenda, I consider you the queen. Oh, that's sort of a mixed epithet. <laughs> no, I'm saying in terms of understanding and knowing and getting it and being able to turn it into language that we as exhibitors of purebred dogs might be able to understand, because to most of us, it's Greek, because you have dealt with this types of organizations for so long and at such a high level. Help us understand, where does this come from? It's simply provocative. They knew it would get your attention. And by golly, it did get your attention. Now, there may be people who really, within the fringes of the animal rights movement, there may be people who actually believe that artificial insemination is evil and represents a form of bestiality. That may be. But more than anything, all of these initiatives have to be able to get public's attention as well. So that's probably part anyway of why this is in here. That is such a great point. And I think something that we know, but I think it's something we all need to hear and why your knowledge is so important because you can understand it because the dog people see that and have hysterics, right? And so let's put it on the basis of what it is. It's the equivalent of any other political stunt. They're trying to get attention. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Except for that you do have people that are, you know, pardon me for saying it this way, but that are so loony that they do believe this. It's just, they are out there. Now, they aren't the majority. The majority of the people in this movement may not even be that interested in animals. This movement has a lot of different layers that it operates at and has a lot of different goals. It is a redistribution goal. You do have to remember that Peter Singer the founder of the movement, the man who, the philosopher who wrote Animal Liberation was a Marxist. And this certainly is a redistribution movement, if you think about it. It isn't that we have less dogs in America today than we did 20 or 30 years ago. We actually have more, and there are more in households. It's just that the people who have them and sell them, or I should say adopt them out, are different than the people who used to have them and sell them to the public. And I think that point is lost on a lot of people. Think about the various groups that have had, let's just focus in on elephants, circuses and zoos that have had to give up their elephants. Those elephants weren't put to sleep. They went somewhere. They went to sanctuaries and the sanctuaries were run by animal rights people usually, or people who claimed that they had adopted that philosophy. But very often when you'd go and look at the new sanctuary where the elephants were kept, it wasn't any nicer. And in many cases, it was not nearly as good as the original place where they were. But that group was now making money on people coming to see the elephants. That's right. That's right. And animals that are adopted out, you know, money does change hands. 
So it really is all about sort of changing who's in charge of this animal agenda in the United States. And that confuses people. It really confuses people a lot. There are absolutely many people within the animal rights movement who care deeply about animals and they're influenced by the philosophy that is taught to them as they get into it and it becomes kind of a cult. They buy one idea and then it moves you to the next step and the next step and so on until pretty soon you feel so deeply about all these issues that you don't think it's appropriate to use animals in any way at all. You become a vegan and you can't even wear shoes that are made of leather, etc. So it's a progression. There are definitely people who really believe deeply and from their heart in these ideas. And actually, I have a lot of affection for them because they are sincere, at least. (laughs) Right. But many of the people at the top of the movement are just very, very cynical. And they understand that this is probably the most humane culture in the history of the world. I mean, you know, how many Americans that keep dogs think these dogs are part of their family? They have birthday parties for them. Mm -hmm. They take them on vacations with them, you know, on and on and on. And so this is from a cause marketing. That's what you're up against. It's a very particular kind of marketing. They're marketing a cause. It has an ideology. It can replace religion to a certain degree because, you know, it's a new way of looking at the world and a way of looking at our salvation and so on. So they market this and they market it in a very sophisticated way. And they have lots and lots of different levels of audience that they're going to with different parts of their agenda. So you have very, very sophisticated people at the top of this movement, and some of them have political interests only. I mean, like there is a absolutely without question a big Marxist element in all of this. For some people, it's just power and control. It's not about the animals. It's about who controls the animals, who controls the conversation. So when you look at it, you have to look at it from a lot of different perspectives. And you have people in the movement that are situated along a long continuum. And again, I have a lot of respect for, I mean, some of the nicest people you will ever meet have Mm -hmm. been taken in by this because they truly love animals Mm -hmm. and they want to believe they have a high opinion of their fellow man. They don't think that people would deceive them in this particular way. I mean, this is a matter of the heart. So (laughs) hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. One of the things that I think is interesting, Patty, and I want to touch on this briefly and then move to some action items we can do. When you talk about the people who have been, if you will, taken in by this conversation, in many instances, it's people and purebred dogs. 
Absolutely, because we love dogs. So some of this language resonates with us. And in fact, you know, when I first got started, one of the things that really pulled me into this by accident was I did an article for Richard Beauchamp. Yes. And at the very beginning, I was at the beginning of my knowledge curve on this. And I was asked to write an article about a bill that had been introduced in Oregon statewide that was very similar to the San Mateo breeding ban. And we won in Oregon. We were able to organize the dog fancy. Oregon's always really been cool that way. The people step up right away. So we won. And Richard asked me if I would write an article on what we did. Well, I had no idea what we did. We organized people, we went down there and we won, but we certainly were not experts on legislative affairs at that time. But in the article, I happened to mention that there was an animal rights agenda associated with this, which I did not know existed before this bill. I mean, I knew that there were people out there that were extreme in their positions and that behaved badly, but I didn't know much about the animal rights agenda. Right. So in the course of working on the bill, the Oregon bill, I met farmers, ranchers, biomedical research scientists. I met this one gal who really affected me deeply. She was with a group called Incurably Ill for Animal Research, and she invited me to attend a science fair where we were together in a booth for a short period of time. And this guy came up to her and he asked her how animal research had saved her life. And she explained that she had a kidney transplant and that it had been worked out, you know, with animals. And he promptly got real close to her face and then spit right in her face and told her that he hoped that she would die, that she would die the same horrible death that these animals had had to... Anyway, so I saw a side of this that was really frightening, horrible, and evil. I will say evil. This was just an absolutely horrible thing to witness. And this was such a lovely person. And anyway, she was an advocate for research. So I met people who would say to me, gosh, you know, you're down here to protect pet breeding. This is really interesting. We wondered how long it would take the animal rights movement to get around to you. They've been after research for decades. They have been after agriculture for a long time. And when you look at the animal rights agenda, we've always known you were on it, but this is the first, anyway, blah, blah, blah. So when I wrote that article, we got a lot of feedback and Richard got death threats and he had worked for Vanity Fair before he had written extensively in the other world, not just in the dog world, and he had never experienced anything like this. He wasn't afraid. He was just sort of shocked to find out that there were these horrible people out there that that over an article like this would go to such extremes. And what year was that, Patty? That was like the early 90s? That was either 90 or 91. Right. That's what I thought. Yeah, 90 or 91. And we were surprised, too. (laughs) I must say, we were surprised, too. But then we wrote something that ultimately we turned into a book a couple years later. And it was called The Hijacking. I think it had hijacking in the title. But anyway, it was a more extensive, more well-researched article, because obviously we knew that we had definitely pinched somebody's nerve on this. And also just 
over the course of two or three years, I was learning way more about this movement than I ever wanted to learn, expected to learn. I mean, if you met Rod and I in the late 80s, we're just going to dog shows with everybody else every weekend, piling the dogs into the car and taking off. And I was asked to do this, by the way, by the local judges study group when we had the bill come up in Oregon. They asked us if we could do it because they knew that we had a legal kennel license. And oh, gosh, wow. at the beginning of the 90s, there were a lot of restrictions on how many dogs you could own and that sort of thing. And so when Rod and I moved to Oregon, we made sure that we got a legal kennel license and stuff. So everybody kind of felt like we were the safe ones to go do this. So that was the, it wasn't anybody that said, you know, gee, Patty is so brilliant. I think that we should call on her and she'll set the world right for us. It didn't happen like that. So anyhow. It evolved, but I met people. I met a research scientist who was sitting at his dining table with his family when a bullet was past him. At the beginning of the 90s, it was a little different kind of movement. They were still being very violent. There were a couple of Supreme Court cases that came along that pretty much made it such that the groups couldn't be one arm's length removed and encourage it without also having some liability. So mm-hmm. things changed. But we had the Oregon State Fur Barn was burned to the ground down at the University of Oregon. A couple Remember of years that. Before that laboratory mm-hmm. had been trashed and I got a million, I want to say a million dollar microscope. I don't know if that's it. Whatever it was, it was a huge amount of money was destroyed. And then the USDA station over, I think, in Redmond, Washington, was burned. Mm -hmm. You had a lot of violence at that time to sort of get your attention. So if you were getting letters in the mail from people who said they wanted to hurt you, you paid a little more attention to it than maybe you would now. So after we wrote the second article then, we had this big rural mailbox. It was, you know, big enough to put probably a bag of dog food in, maybe a small bag of dog food. But we started getting things like dead cats, in the mailbox. And then we had a live snake. It was a garter snake. It wasn't a poisonous snake, but you knew that there were people that that had their eye on you. Yeah. So, you know, that really did get our attention and really more than anything, you know, my background, when I was in college, I took political science thinking I wanted to be an ambassador. I really liked the idea of getting people together and getting people to understand they have more in common than they think, that sort of thing. So, you know, I had a little background as far as just education, that experience in legislation. So one thing led to the next, and now we are at 30 years. NAIA has now been here for 30 years. It is a real, honest-to-God animal welfare organization. I'm really proud of where we are. We have real programs. We have subject matter experts that are with us throughout our organization. We started out really thinking that if we exposed the animal rights movement, if we shared all the information that we were able to gather, that that would be it. That's how naive we were in 1990, 1991. It's like, well, if we just tell everybody and if we get a big enough megaphone, Now, I will tell you, we did do a lot of good because we did awaken the dog fancy, and I'm going to give us credit for that. Well, and I want you to do a couple more things first. We're going to do a little more awakening here in the dog fancy (laughs) 30 years later. Okay. And I want us to hear from you some of the things that we can be aware of in how we think about our own dogs and how we talk and the language that you use and all of those sorts of things that 
I feel like our civilization almost has been overtaken by this agenda and that we can fight back against it in some ways. So what are some of the things that we can do just in our own language? I think this may be, you know, something for another day when we do a whole hour. But I would just tell you that you do have to be aware that there are people out there and that you're associating with them every day who maybe they're not even on the other side, but they definitely have been the recipients of a lot of misinformation and information that's told from a very biased point of view. Propaganda is everywhere. One of my favorite articles, and it's actually from a speech, was from Michael Crichton, the guy who wrote Jurassic Park. Right. And it's his speech to the Commonwealth. And he opens it up by saying, I've been asked to speak to you today and to tell you what I think is the greatest threat facing mankind. And I have a fundamental answer. It is the ability to discern reality from fiction, truth from... And so we're in a propaganda war and it's everywhere. And it's in many other areas. <laughs> oh, it is. It's political and it's both sides of the aisle. It's mm-hmm. both sides of the aisle. Everybody understands these tools. Sitting foot and a half from me right now, I have a book called Influence. It's an old marketing book that I think you get when you're in your second year of marketing. I own it. <laughs> and it's about how all this stuff works. And unfortunately... The difference between perception and reality, we understand that perception is reality. So when people understand that, that are not as kind and honest as you and I, it's misused. It's misused everywhere. And I never will forget when I was looking at something that, you know, one of the really radical groups like PETA or HSUS was doing, and I was just really looking at the operational style, how it worked, just Mm -hmm. every single step along And then I was looking at something political. I thought, oh, my God, they got it from them. (laughs) So anyway. Well, which came first, the chicken or the egg? But yeah, I mean, without question. So what are some things that you think of in, let's just stick to language. We can do a whole nother podcast on other things, but let's do this one little bit on language. Are you for or against Firmom, for example? Or, you know, some of the things that we... Oh, some of the things, the crazy things that mm-hmm. our team buys into. And I don't even like pet parents. Well, but a lot of people do, even people in our community. No, I, know. I think you have to be very careful. And also, you know, one of the major goals of the animal rights movement is to turn us all into guardians instead of owners. Yes. And so obviously you have to be very, very careful that you don't fall into that trap. And when you say you're your pet's guardian or you are a pet parent or whatever, you are moving the goalpost a little bit in their direction. Obviously you don't want to sound cold and heartless because that plays into the agenda too. I think each person maybe is going to develop their own language. So it's just about being sensitive to the language itself, being very, very aware. One of my favorites is you don't adopt a puppy from me. You purchase a puppy from me. For example, it makes me nuts when people call me and they want to know how much it will cost them to adopt a dog from me. I am very quick to correct them. And they say, well, I don't have any rescue or, you know, rehome dogs here. I have only dogs that I have bred and my husband and I have been breeding for 52 years. And so we have, you know, blah, blah, blah. And this is the range that we charge for our dogs. But no, we're very clear that it is a sale. Right. But again, you have to be very careful All the language that they have, again, cause marketing. It has its own language. It has its own lexicon. They develop it. And you got to understand, these groups, the top groups, and again, HSUS, they play with 
focus groups and all of the tools of marketing all the time. So they know what works. They know what sounds good to the public. So if you try to respond to that by saying the opposite, you're going to sound negative. So that's not right. what we're after here either. You have to be sensitive to the language. And I just think that, you know, that old thing about the truth will set you free. I am really big on truth telling, on just being very honest and open about what you do, what it means, why it matters, all of those things, and from your own value system. In other words, you can't speak in sound bites and win, because if you try to come up with a sound bite that is going to be the perfect rejoinder to what they've just said, you're going to lose, because mm-hmm. you are going to sound cold and heartless. And obviously, those of us who spend our entire lives with dogs, who pump every extra dime we have into our dogs. Blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, and who spend more at veterinarians than many, many people spend on their kids. I mean, we love our dogs deeply, but Mm -hmm. we just don't confuse them with people. We know that they are dogs, and we take care of them. to the Which frequently, I believe, are better than people. So there you go. (laughs) <laughs> so there you go. So there you go. Okay. So I okay. think when we tell the truth about what we do, when we're honest about what we do and open about what we do and why we do it, right. which then really relays our values to people. I think that when we do that, we always succeed. The truth will out. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, Patty, thank you so much. As always, you bring such sanity and clarity to this area. Oh God, I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Not that. And your input is greatly valued. So Uh, thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. You guys, I am so excited. I've been wanting to create a live call-in show forever. So finally, I decided to just do it. Dog shows, dog grooming, dog handling, dog breeding, you name it. Join the conversation live and get trusted answers to all of your questions. No more Facebook groups, no more 20,000 answers to the same question, just solid knowledge. Amazing. Start planning now. Visit the Pure Dog Talk Facebook page for a link to our YouTube live lightning round with Laura. Be on the lookout for live chat opportunities, special guests, they'll be a secret, live calls from the audience, and more. Let's kick off the new year in Pure Dog Talk style. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things, to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. 
Our dog show superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.